Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, it's Friday. It was a long, long week. I went to Tampa on Monday night because I had a speech Tuesday morning to the National Association of Electrical Distributors. As you all know, I'm I'm huge in the electrical distribution community, and um, it was kind of funny because I had talked to, you know, their guy literally on election day the week earlier, and we talked about what I would talk about and all this kind of stuff, and we were working on the conventional wisdom that the Republicans would have somewhere between a historically normal good night and something more or maybe a little less, but blah, 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 blah. And then instead we got the the spectacle of 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 the election. And so I kind of had to wing it, um, a little more than I would have liked because, you know, it was just, it was all new. Like I'd been prepared to give a different talk until, (laughs) you know, whatever. But, um, I think it went well, really great bunch of guys, some dispatch fans. Um, and, um, um, and I'm not just saying this because they paid me to give a talk, but like, you know, I kind of dig those kinds of um, gigs because it's it's really interesting to see industries I know very little about and about like and just talk to them about what their issues are. One of my favorite questions to always ask um, these kinds of trade association guys when I'm either whether I'm going to give a speech for them or whether I just meet them around Washington is like, what are the issues that divide your members? Um, because I always think that's just sort of kind of interesting, and I'm not going to dine out on the various issues dividing electrical distributors. But um, it's always interesting when you think that, like, you know, particularly for a trade association, it's this undifferentiated block of, of, of interest in their issues. And then whenever you talk to any institution of any size or significance, you find out that they have internal divisions too. And I think it's just an interesting way to learn about stuff. Anyway, um, so I'm going to try something new here. It just occurred to me 10 seconds before I started recording. Um, I'm going to go through, because uh, I couldn't figure out what to talk about, um, um, at least at first. Um, oh yeah, and by the way, I'm losing my voice, as you can tell, which is a problem for a podcaster. Um, oh, another story. Just, uh, I forgot. So like, yeah, I went to Tampa, gave a speech, went pretty well. Um, they wanted me to like, walk around, you know, at first they are asking me to load my PowerPoint kind of stuff, my slides. And I've never done those kinds of speeches. Uh, I think my wife is right. I should probably put together something where I do that kind of thing. Um, I don't think it's that hard. It's just not me. And, um, and I'm not really like a Tony Robbins, you know, release the power within walk around the stage kind of guy either. Um, but I did it. It was fine. It went well and got back to the airport flew. So I was in Tampa for like 15 hours bummed not to be able to go to Ybor City or I think it's Ybor, um, which is like Cigar Town, USA. Got to Reagan National and went 
straight to a tux rental place. Um, actually, the first place I went to didn't do same day rentals, so I went to another tux rental place. And I have a tux, but it is a not only is it pre COVID, it is you know pre uh, dispatch startup, pre all the stress eating that came with the last year with my mom and all that kind of stuff. And I've gained a bunch of weight. I mean, the tux still, my old tux still fit me, but I was just just terrified that you know in the middle of the AI annual dinner, what we call the AI prom you know, some button was going to fly off and take out Dick Cheney's eye or something. So I, I rented to the talks. Prom went fine. It was good. Arthur Brooks gave a lovely talk. Um, it was sort of a, a, a consolidation of all of his happiness research and all, all that on, on politics. So it was good. And then, um, uh, and then yesterday I drove to Baltimore to do an event with Mara Eliasson from NPR, which was interesting for the University of Maryland, um, uh, Baltimore campus for the School of Public Health. I can't remember the exact formal title. That was fun and interesting, interesting group of people. We had a board meeting for <laughs> the dispatch. So it's, anyway, it's been a week, um, you know, not counting all the usual punditry stuff. So... Um, Anyway, I had this idea. I'm sorry if if I'm rambling. I'm I'm very, I'm very tired. Um, I'm going to go quickly through the quick hits from the morning dispatch this morning. I'm not going to read each one all the way through, but I thought maybe that's a way to sort of make this topical. Also to tell people, you know, to communicate to people that they really should subscribe to the morning dispatch. Um, I mean, the full members only one. It's, um, it's just a great product. Um, I hate calling it a product, but you know, Sue me. Um, and so the format of it is usually like um, a bunch of quick hits, you know, small news encapsulations as, as consistent with our philosophy here at the dispatch of not wasting people's time and making people feel like they got caught up on the news and then it can go on with the rest of their life. And then usually it's one big report, more deeply reported story. Sometimes it's two. Um, and then there's all sorts of potpourri at the end. Um, including our, probably our most popular feature, the uh, post it without comment um, feature. But anyway, so the item one on this is that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced Tuesday or Thursday that she will not seek re-election to leadership in the next Congress, ending a 20-year run atop the House Democratic Caucus that featured two different separate stints as Speaker. Um, I got I got very little on this. You know, I was texting with Pod yesterday. I I don't. I don't have much to say about Nancy Pelosi. I, I'm not a huge fan of her politics, you know, ideologically speaking. It's great that we had a female speaker. You know, I, I don't get super worked up about that kind of stuff. Um, but I understand, understand why people who do. Um, I think it's long overdue that the Democrats get younger leadership. I mean, the lady is 80 and Steny Hoyer is close behind that. And I think she's been a ca- pretty capable politician about... Um, keeping her caucus uh, unified and in line. I think she gets more credit for keeping like the squad in line than a lot of liberals uh, that I'm seeing on TV suggests, because I think the way she did that was basically by dragging the moderates to more left-wing position rather than dragging the left-wingers to a more moderate position. And I think, you know, she's responsible in part for moving the Democratic Party leftward in ways that I don't think are necessarily good for the country or for the Democrats. But I also don't think she's a demon figure. I don't think her husband deserved to be hit over the head with a hammer. I think she's just a, you know, a competent, you know, uh, 
competent to somewhat impressive, um, very liberal San Francisco Democrat who people are deeply invested in. And I was, as I was saying to Pod, I think that like one of the things that very turned on political people, particularly the ones who are in front of cameras, can't fully appreciate is that if you have very strong speak, very, very strong feelings about the Speaker of the House, one way or the other, you have self-selected yourself as a very small minority of Americans. Um, you know, most Americans don't go around all day following what the Speaker of the House is doing or being deeply invested in the political fortunes or political perils of the Speaker of the House of Representatives. And it might be a better country. I mean, I'm, I'm a congressional supremacist as a constitutional matter. I shouldn't say supremacist, but you know what I mean. It's the first branch. It should be have more power. Um, maybe this country would be better off if we thought of the speaker that way. Um, but we don't. And, um, and so just like, if her tenure is like super, super meaningful for you, you're kind of like more likely to be closer to like a Leslie Nope character from parks and recreation than, um, you know, your average American. All right. Moving on from that, because I really don't have much else to say. The next item is about uh, um, the controversy and the disputes about this wayward uh, missile that hit Poland. Um, it feels to me like Zelensky is pressing this too hard by saying that it's not clear it was a Ukrainian missile. I can come up with all sorts of scenarios why he would want to do that. He doesn't want to piss off Poland. He wants everyone to be pissed off at Russia, yada, yada, yada. And maybe he's right. Maybe he's right that it's not clear um, what it was. What bothers me is I just, I take offense at the whole idea that somehow if it's a Ukrainian anti, you know, um, you know, if it's, if it's a Ukrainian um, air defense missile instead of a Russian offensive missile, that somehow it's not still Russia's fault. Um you know, if you rob a liquor store and you shoot at the cashier and you shoot at the customers and the cashier or the customers or one of them shoots back at you in self-defense and the stray bullet hits somebody outside, it's tragic. But the ultimate blame and responsibility is on the liquor store robber, not, you know, people defending themselves. And... um it just seems that as a, as a matter of sort of moral accounting, that is obvious. Um, you know, it's not like Ukraine would be throwing these things up in the air if um, Russia hadn't lawlessly invaded. Oh, and speaking of this, I, 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 I tweeted about this last night, but it is really just astounding. Um, Margie Taylor Greene, this, this is not in the dispatch stuff, but Margie Taylor Greene, um, I guess yesterday said that over X period of time, I was I, there's a clip of it, that over X period of time, 5 million illegal immigrants have crossed our border. I don't know if that number's right. It's probably directional, it's certainly directionally right. I don't know what the period of time is. Whatever, let's just stipulate that it's true. She says, now compare that to the number of Russians who have crossed Ukraine's border, a mere 82,000. I don't think that number is right, but fine, 82,000. And then she goes on, like, why is the Biden administration more interested in protecting Ukraine's border than our own? 
Now, look, I think it's perfectly legitimate to ding the administration, both this one and the previous one, for failures at the border, you know, um, and the one before that and the one before that, right? Secure borders are just a bedrock, normal obligation of nation states. Um, um, But the idea that all of these people desperate to flee um, crappy economies or crappy countries um, or crappy governments um, to make better lives for themselves and for their kids, you know, weeding out the handful of terrorists and drug dealers, um, that somehow that's comparable to rolling into Ukraine with tanks and artillery batteries is just so morally grotesque and idiotic that I just, I don't understand how people can stand, you know, she's standing there with a bunch of other Republicans. I know most normal people, including most normal MAGA people, and I know some, you know, they'll all concede in private that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's an idiot. You know, maybe some will have some sort of respect for her lizard brain ability to entertain people, but she's an idiot. I mean, she's like a real, real uh, has to write TGIF on her slippers to remember that her toes go in first um, moron. And what she says there, like the only defense of her um, that you can come up with in saying something like that is that she knows it's stupid and then therefore she's just being evil, um, which is not a great defense. And um, But the number of people who are unwilling or incapable of admitting that in public, I just find really depressing. Anyway, moving on. Um, oh, okay. So this is what gave me the idea that I should probably talk about stuff. Uh, I'll read from the Morning Dispatch. A longtime veteran of Republican campaigns was found guilty of charges related to a scheme to solicit and conceal donations from a Russian national to Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Jesse Benton, a former top advisor to Ron Paul and his son Rand, was pardoned in 2020 by Trump for previous convictions on campaign finance crimes involving illegal donations in Iowa. Um, the reason why I want to talk about this, I'm not going to get deep in the weeds. I don't know a lot about the allegations um, and all that. I'm fairly confident that Benton is guilty. Um, but the funny thing is, is that I used to hang out with Jesse Benton all the time in the dog park in Adams Morgan when we used to have Cosmo and I used to live up there. He was a nice enough kid, did not strike, you know, and he was kind of, I mean, he was young at the time and he was kind of um, overly friendly with me because he knew I worked at National Review or at least so I surmised and he wanted to talk conservative stuff, which was fine, you know, and I liked the kid. Um, He had a great dog at the time, but a genius is not something I confused him for. You know, my wife remembered him as much more ambitious than I did, which is, and she's, she's probably right. But it just, it's, it's really funny to me that this, this kid who was basically like, you know, an intern kind of conversation level guy um, has now been embroiled in all of these things. And that he was, um, and I, I was I was stunned years ago because McConnell at one point hired him for his campaign, I think, to make peace with the Randian faction in Kentucky. I don't follow that stuff that closely or I don't remember. But I, I was just amazed that anybody was give, promoting him that high up the food chain. And so now, anyway, he's in this whole different kettle of fish, and I think he's in real trouble. And it just sort of shows you, you know, what a lot of the people, I don't know if it's, it's I don't know if the, that the Rand and Ron Paul world 
attracts these kinds of people or creates these kinds of people. But um, it's not shocking to me that that this comes from that part of the right. Um, what else? Uh, Brittany Griner is still detained in Moscow. Um, I don't know what we do about this thing because it's just so clearly a political, an outrageous political move. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that that last proposed swap thing didn't happen because I, as a matter of statecraft, I didn't think it was a good idea. But I, I, you have to feel for this woman. I mean, like, it's just, it's an outrageous what Russia is doing. Um, and I don't know that there's any great solution to fixing this in the near term. So anyway, I'm not going to read that whole thing. North Korea launched a missile uh, because North Korea does that. Labor Department reported Thursday that initial jobless claims, a proxy for layoffs, fell by 4,000 week over week to a seasonally adjusted 222,000 last week. The measure is up from earlier this year, but it remains near historic lows, signaling the labor market, though cooling, continues to be tight. Um, And then there's some update on COVID stuff. And then it gets into the whole Republicans, the reported pieces about Republicans getting into investigations. Um, and on that, this is going to be a difficult time for me to sort of thread this needle. Um, I think it is entirely legitimate and valid for Republicans to look into the business dealings of Hunter Biden and his family, um, which includes the president of the United States in part, because things the president of the United States has said about what he knew and when he knew it and all of that relating to his sons and his brother's business has turned out not to be true. And all you'd have to do to, to see that there is some legitimacy to this, if you're on the left, is hang an R after Biden's name and think about what Democrats would be saying if this was Biden. Um, I mean, if, if Biden was a Republican um, or if this was Trump or Bush or any Republican. Right. And um, um, so I think that is legitimate. Whether it's smart politics right now, I time will tell, right? Because it, it it could be for you know party cohesion, and since it's not like Republicans have anything else that they can do with you know a one or two or three seat majority in the Senate controlled by Democrats um, and the presidential veto hanging out there, and so you know, this is what parties out of power or parties barely in power do, you know, is they do investigations, but. Whether it's politically smart to do this investigation in theory or whether in practice they will do it in a smart way are different questions. And it just feels like they're going to overplay their hands on this. Um, I think that the, I, was, I caught some of Morning Joe this morning and they're all talking about how you know, the GOP is already doubling down on extremism. I, I think that's BS. Again, I don't. I don't think investigating the shady business dealings of the president's fairly tragic son is uh, illegitimate, and I don't think it's extremism, but they could do it in an extreme way. This could be um, just a total freak show, and there's so many incentives for it to become one uh, that it could wildly backfire. And um, this is another one of these sort of remnanty, dispatchy kind of positions where, you know, as a conservative, I think it's entirely, I, I think this stuff is, is, is in principle valid, but the politics of it could be incredibly stupid. And, um, 
but my position doesn't really support the preferred narratives of either side or of the media, both right wing and left wing and, and mainstream or whatever. So it's just going to, I look forward to this being just an enormous hassle to talk about. Um, sort of like the Russia collusion stuff, which I never really wrote very much about um, in part because on the one hand, I thought it was utterly plausible that Trump would uh, collude with Russia. And I think that the Trump Tower meeting demonstrated that. Um, but at the same time, I was skeptical of the allegations and I just figured I would wait until the facts came out. And so I'm glad I did because otherwise I could have gone down a thousand different rabbit holes. I don't think I can just sort of sit on the sidelines on, on the Hunter Biden stuff. Cause I'm just, I, I know I'm going to get asked about it all the time, um, particularly on TV. Where, do, where should we go? Oh, so, uh, Barry Weiss's newsletter, um, which is great, pointed me to, this piece, or I should say it pointed my wife who then pointed it to me, um, from 2013 in the Boston Review by Barbara H. Freed, who is the mother of the, the, the crypto bro who's in all the trouble. Um, and um, it's... It's kind of, I mean, it, I think it's kind of a fascinating piece. She's apparently like a, uh, let me read you her bio at the end of this. I don't know if it's still true. She's a big Democratic activist, like her husband, like her son. Uh, but her bio in this piece, which is from 2013 again, so, you know, um, almost 10 years, is uh, Barbara H. Freed. Uh, the William W. and Gertrude H. Saunders Professor of Law at Stanford Law School is author of The Progressive Assault on Laissez-Faire, Robert Hale and the First Law and Economics Movement. She's also a member of the board of the McCoy Family Center for Ethics in Society at Stanford University. So fancy, fancy. And um, she writes this piece called Beyond Blame. Um, the summary of it is, the, the philosophy of personal responsibility has ruined criminal justice and economic policy. It's time to move past blame. Now, um, I gave this a pretty cursory read because I only found out about it a few minutes before I started recording. But I love this kind of thing, right? So, like, uh, I'm for you know, a pretty conservative guy who thinks they're like moral rights and wrongs and all that kind of stuff. And who casts a pretty skeptical eye on a lot of academic philosophy and ethics discourse, shall we say, I'm actually much more open to the arguments that, um, you know, this, this is basically a, a root causes argument, right? This is a, uh, which in, you know, if you get into it, there's also a lot of like, philosophical determinism and biological determinism, sort of name checking and whatnot. And that's all fine. I love arguments about whether free will exists. I find it fascinating stuff. Um, I find the, and I find the arguments that, you know, um, root causes, whether it's social, you know, you know, nature or nurture are more explanatory than we would like to think. Um, some of those twin studies are really fascinating and disturbing at the same time. But, my problem with uh, this kind of thing, right, this idea that personal responsibility needs to go because it's kind of a myth, 
I don't think personal responsibility is a myth, right? Um, I just think that there's a there are there are better arguments than I would normally like to recognize that there are other factors at work other than sort of just personal responsibility. And it is absolutely true that say my daughter is going to have unfair advantages over um, you know the a the daughter from a poor single mother in West Virginia or Detroit or whatever. I just think that's you have to acknowledge that, and you can acknowledge even that that's unfair, right? Um, the thing that I find sort of fascinating about these kinds of conversations is um, how little effort the people who make these kinds of arguments um, put into figuring out how to answer the question. So what's the alternative? Right. I mean, like uh, it's, it's very, it's analogous, um, you know, to the arguments about markets and capitalism. Capitalism has all sorts of problems to it. I mean, I, I'm, the, I'm happy to acknowledge that, um, you know, uh, the, you know, reducing things to, you know, profits and losses and the sort of relentless creative destruction and churn that you get from capitalism, the rent seeking and the, the, you know, the collusion between, you know, big corporate actors and government actors, all these things are problematic, you know, and all these things have downsides and I'm perfectly willing to acknowledge them. But it's, it's like there are a whole bunch of smart, morally and philosophically ambitious people who will spend vast amounts of time explaining what's wrong with the status quo who become idiots or just silent when it comes to describing the alternative. Uh, Jerry Muller said somewhere, I remember him saying this, and I, I've been trying to find a citation for it, that, you know, in the tens of thousands of pages that Karl Marx wrote about Marxism um, and communism and dialectical materialism and, and all of this stuff and, and how capitalism is evil, it's there are like a dozen pages where he actually talks about how communism would actually work. And um, I think some of this has gets at sort of the critic's mindset, that the critic thinks just because you can po poke f holes in the object of your criticism doesn't mean that you can actually come up with something better. And good film critics understand this, right? Good theater critics understand this. Um but I think a lot of philosophers and other academics um, don't understand this when they talk about economics and moral philosophy and stuff. And it doesn't, you know, so like, again, it kind of sucks that we have to figure out so much of the, you know, distribution of goods and resources um, based upon the, the price mechanism, Right. Um, there are flaws with that. It reduces, it commodifies things, whatever. We can come up with, you might have different, you know, critiques of what the price mechanism, what the price system does um, to society than I do. But like, I think we can, all reasonable people can probably agree that at least in theory, there's some, you know, there's some real downsides to it. What's your alternative, right? What are you going, what system of economics for determining how to distribute goods and resources are you going to come up with if you're not going to use the price mechanism? Because there's a really rich body of literature that shows that once you get away from using um, prices and markets to figure out, um, you know, the, 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 the value or how to prioritize various goods and services, you get 
massive corruption. You get massive inefficiency. Um, uh, and you get more hunger, poverty, and starvation, right? I mean, it's uh, prices keep system keeps the system honest because it's 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 a signal as much as anything else. And similarly, I, I you know as a, I don't use the phrase social justice approvingly because it's a terrible phrase, but um, but you know as a matter of just justice, right? Which I do believe in. Um, I think reasonable people can come up with all sorts of empathetic and morally compassionate um, responses to claims that, you know, there's a lot of unfairness um, in the system that we have now that, you know, your odds of going to jail if you were born into a family with a bad hand are much higher than if you were born into a family had a good hand. And, and, and it should pull at your heartstrings a little bit because kids are coming to this world blameless. And, um, and it is entirely legitimate to try to think about ways to um, fix social arrangements, you know, either through government or non-government agencies or just through moral suasion of one kind or another to, to, to lighten the burden of that kind of thing. That's all fine. And those are all legitimate arguments and we're not going to get deep in the weeds in them. But if you're going to tell me that somehow society would be better off if we got rid of the concept of personal responsibility, um, you're going to have to show me your work. Like, how does how does criminal justice work, right? How does how does how do, how do, how do you raise your kids if you don't believe in the concept of personal responsibility? Um, you know, like this is one of these things where. You know, I mean, I know it didn't work out for Indiana Jones where he filled the bag with sand because he thought it was the same weight as the golden idol. But at least he understood that he needed to replace the golden idol with something else before he, you know, ran away with it. If you're going to replace the concept of personal responsibility with something else, um, you need to run some simulations for a while. You need some test cases and pilot projects. Because I am unaware of how you could possibly run um, a society where you didn't hold individuals accountable for their bad actions. And there's actually, um, I, have, I have a bunch, there's a bunch of literature on this that I got into when I was working on Suicide of the West. Um, like, punishment is really important for holding societies together. Um, doesn't have to be cruel and unusual or anything like that. But if, you know, it was this guy from university, I think of Pennsylvania, I, I should have looked it up. Um, I've written about it before, but you know, there are like examples from like wagon trains. If you're not doing your part, if you're a shirker and you're not penalized for it in some way, um, shirking and, 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 and free riding becomes contagious and the contagion of that kind of stuff spreads very, very quickly. Um, there's all sorts of literature on how, uh, sort of as an evolutionary matter, we don't like, we have a sort of a moral taste bud that says we don't like it when people get too many benefits from the tribe, right? If you get more than your fair share. But we also don't like people who freeload, and don't do their fair share, right? So, like, 
if you're working really hard and you get more than your fair share, people are really like, hey, I worked just as hard. Why is he getting more than me? Fair enough. And that's one of the reasons why capitalism bothers the moral taste buds of a lot of people. Um, but if you worked really hard and somebody else didn't work at all and they get the same share as you, that pisses you off too. And that's why we, you know, people have problems with, with um, excessively generous welfare states. Um, both things are sort of wired in, not necessarily hardwired, but they're sort of part of our programming. And um, the idea that somehow you're going to create a society where the society will take all of the blame when an individual murders or rapes somebody, um, I mean, like, what could go wrong with that? Um, and so I just, I generally find that... Uh, these kinds of arguments, while very interesting as a as sort of an academic or even a sophomoric level, fall apart when you try to come up with an alternative. The same, you know, this is the same argument, you know, we've been making for a while about democracy. All sorts of flaws with democracy. Um, you know, Kevin Williamson can give them to you chapter and verse, right? Um, which is one of the reasons why we don't have a pure democracy. We 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 temper our democracy with other mechanisms. And social arrangements, it's become fashionable to say that we temper them with Republican um, institutions and arrangements. But as I've discussed on here before, um, uh, this is sort of a fairly modern invention to say that Republican is this counterweight to Democratic. You know, and you hear this from a lot of right wingers. We don't live in a democracy. We live in a republic. And, and you try to ask them, well, what does that mean? And it gets very murky very quickly. But it's definitely true that we have all sorts of counter-majoritarian or non-majoritarian institutions. Um, if you want to call them Republican, you know, because that's what the word has come to mean, fine. But, the, you know, but the point is, is, that, is that, you know, like the Supreme Court is not a democratic institution. It has democratic elements because someone who's democratically elected gets to nominate members of the Supreme Court. And then a democratically elected body, the Senate, gets to confirm them. So there's some democratic accountability in it, but once they're in there, uh, there's no democratic, small d democratic accountability whatsoever, and that was by design. Um, and you know, uh, so was the old way of having state legislatures appoint senators instead of uh, voters. None of those things really, really bother me. They just my only point of bringing them up is that they. Um, they reflect the fact that people understood that there were problems with pure democracy, which, you know, as I've always said, is the doctrine that says 51% of the people can pee in the cornflakes of 49% of the people. The Bill of Rights is a uh, non-democratic institution in the sense that it takes certain fundamental questions about the kind of society where we're going to live in and um, places them outside of... Um, at the very least, easy democratic correction. It's really hard to change the Constitution, and that was by design as well, um, because we set up a system that didn't want to make our fundamental liberties contingent upon the temporary passions of a, of a temporary majority. So, but like, you hear all sorts of people from the nationalist right and the, you know, the, the post-liberal right and all these kinds of things, talking about the problems with, you know, the status quo, democracy, the current order, um, you know, getting too messant over illiberal democracies like, you know, like Orban or even in some cases Putin and yada, yada, yada. 
And the thing is, is like, again, I'm open to all the criticisms about our current constitutional and democratic arrangements. I mean, I'm open to hearing about them. doesn't mean I necessarily agree with them. But the second these people start talking about the alternatives, um, they get kind of goofy and silly. You know, and like the Adrian Vermeule stuff. There's actually a really interesting con- conversation on the latest episode of Advisory Opinions where um, uh, Sarah and David talk about the future of the Federalist Society. Part of their, I haven't read this Politico piece that inspired it, but um, part of the problem is that the Federalist Society is now, as David puts it, the apex predator um, in the legal community. He says there's no sort of legal, no legal organization that's more powerful. If, um, if David were here, I would ask him, does he really mean that it's more powerful than the American Bar Association? Um, I'm sure he has an answer. I'm just kind of curious about that. But barring the Bar Association, I think he's probably right about the Federalist Society. And um, anyway, anyway, apparently there's this piece in Politico that argued that uh, the Federalist Society has achieved its purpose with the overturning of Roe. I agree with Sarah and David that that's a little overstated and simplistic because I don't think the Federalist Society was solely about overturning Roe. Um, I was not a member of the Federalist Society like those guys are, but I know a lot of Federalist (laughs) Society types. And um, like I probably had more uh, conversations with them about overturning, you know, the 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 New Deal era, the late New Deal era Supreme Court stuff, you know, all that Schecter and all that kind of stuff um, than ever about Roe. Because I think that Roe was bad constitutional law was accepted not just by everybody in the Federalist Society, but by lots of people outside of the Federalist Society. Um, But the larger point that they, they talk about is how the Federalist Society is now in this weird position where once it was the um, rebel alliance and now it's kind of, I don't want to say it's the empire, but it's the establishment, right? It's got all these, it's got five and a half members of the federal society here on the Supreme Court. And so now the temptation um, to use its power and influence for something other than its stated goals of like, you know, limited government, don't legislate from the bench. I can't remember what the three pillars of the Federalist Oath are. Um, But, you know, the whole idea was to be against judicial activism. And now there are forces that are like, well, wait a second. Now we have all this power. Advocating for judicial restraint made sense when, you know, progressives ran all the courts. Um, but now that we have the opportunity to actually impose our best policies, maybe we should do something else. And so far, it seems like the Federal Society has largely held firm and rejected that what I think is really bad idea. Um, but you can you can definitely see on the fringes that sort of temptation. And just to get back to the original point, like judicial restraint textualism or originalism of some form, right? Because there are many rooms in the mansion of originalism. Um, But some serious commitment to the idea that the Constitution is binding, the Constitution as written is binding, and that you just can't read into it whatever you want, seems like really important to me. And 
I find criticisms of that. I, I find criticisms of originalism really, really interesting. Um, and some of them are very well taken. And I think they're very useful to hear because it helps strengthen constitutional originalism to hear the best criticisms of it. But when you get to the alternative about what, what should take its place, I think things just drop in seriousness and persuasiveness by orders of magnitude. Um, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, the pragmatism of Posner or this Dworkin stuff or, uh, you know, judicial positivism. I, I can't remember all these stupid schools right now. I haven't had enough coffee, but you know, the whole, everything from living constitution, which I'm heartened to hear is kind of dying out on down. Um, they're basically just arguments for that, for empowering experts to do what they want. Right. Same thing with this whole thing about getting rid of the concept of personal responsibility. Responsibility is going to have to be laid somewhere. And when bad things happen, and if you get rid of the idea that the person who actually committed the crime or the misdeed is responsible, you are empowering other forces in society, elites, judges, academics, experts, politicians, whatever, to find blame where they want to find it, right? So many of these, once you get basically all of the ideas, all the arguments for replacing liberal democratic capitalism, um, you know, constitutional liberal democratic capitalism, you know, this broad sort of classical liberal approach um, that is utterly consistent with conservatism, American conservatism, once you get past the criticism of that and try to start pro proposing alternatives, it doesn't take long to figure out that they're just all arguments for giving um, power to certain elites that the critics want to give power to, right? Whether it's, you know, some board of, you know, of, of car, you know, Catholic cardinals who get to make all the decisions or mullahs or, you know, a, an individual tyrant. Um, it's all just basically saying, let's give arbitrary power um, to the, to my team. And, um, um, and I would, you know, entirely open to correction on this. I just have never seen um, an, a proposed alternative to the rule of law, procedural liberalism, and capitalism that ultimately doesn't say this group or that group or these experts or those experts shouldn't have um, the ability to basically arbitrarily make decisions about how to organize society and pick winners and losers. And the great thing about, you know, the rule of law and constitutions and classical liberalism is that um, it sets up a system where the losers feel like they lost fairly. Anyway, I, I maybe I'll write about this. On Vermeule kind of thing, I just bring this up for a second. I saw a friend of mine um, at the, at the AI prom and I'll keep him as anonymous as I can. And he was talking about how, you know, he knows a bunch of the sort of a bunch of the Vermeulians and for listeners who don't know, I just always assume you guys guess if you're willing to tolerate listening to me, you, you, you pick this up by now. Adrian Vermeule is apparently a very nice guy in person, um, professor at Harvard law school. 
who basically thinks uh, is basically sort of a right wing social justice guy who thinks that the Constitution should be interpreted in the context of the common good and that judges should be able to have the power to determine what the common good is beyond the narrow strictures of the law or the Constitution or or procedural neutrality or anything like that. And anyway, he was telling me how, you know, he's got these friends who, you know, hosted uh, Free Mule somewhere. And um, and this friend of mine was like, you know, I'm going to bring Jonah Goldberg here sometime. And the guy he said this to says, oh, great, so he can make fart jokes or whatever. And um, and I get the dig, right? I get why the Vermeulean and the Sarab crowd hate my guts and or at least hate my arguments. And they uh, try to, like... Um, cast me as like an unserious person and all that kind of stuff. It's par for the course in the last 25 years of having arguments with people on the internet. And that's all fine. I just, you know, I figure since we're talking about this stuff, I should be clear about something. Um, and I've said this a million times. I don't take myself very seriously, um, but I do take a lot of these ideas very seriously. And um, what I don't take very, what I don't think, let me put it this way. I take very seriously the arguments from people like Vermeule. I just don't think they're very serious arguments, right? I think he's got influence. I think he's got uh, a, a weird fan base, again, who like his stuff because they think it is the path to empowering themselves and empowering their team beyond um, where they could get in a in, in a normal democratic politics. Um, it's all about, you know, it's all special pleading for... Um, these various uh, minority factions that want to be a ruling elite. And so they're willing to sort of take a sledgehammer to the existing system and replace it with something that will make them the head of it. Um, this is an old story among radicals going way back. Um, it is sort of classic behavior. You see it on college campuses all the time. You know, I don't want to be the assistant editor of the school newspaper. I'm going to start my own newspaper and I'll be the editor of it. Right. It's a lot of that. I think that's mostly what all that like Josh Hammer stuff is, is like not respected by the existing legal community. So let's tear down the existing legal community and create some new one that, that says we're awesome. And so uh, as because a lot of these guys think I'm part of some establishment, even though I keep telling them, look, <laughs> my podcast is called The Remnant for a Reason. Um, uh, um, you know, they heap a lot of scorn on me. They heap a lot of scorn on David French. They heap a lot of scorn on the dispatch, on AEI, on the old Reagan, uh, consensus and all that stuff. Um, because that old consensus would require too much work from them to, to rise to the top of it. I'm not, I'm not saying that they don't all believe what they're believing. I'm saying they've, that part of what is, has gotten them to the place where they are is they've given themselves permission to buy a lot of their own BS um, to get, you know, their, their brass ring. And I don't think they'll get it. I don't. And so anyway, my only point is, is that I think in the, in the contest of ideas, you have to take ideas seriously, even very bad ideas, because bad ideas have motivated a lot of people to do a lot of terrible things. Um, you know, go back to Marxism. It's, it's really bad analysis at the end of the day. Even though Marx had all sorts of interesting insights about this, that, or the other thing, in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's just not true. But it gave people permission to act as if it was. This was, 
George Sorrell's, you know, deep insight. Um, George Sorrell was like the father of syndicalism, which was sort of a precursor of both Nazism, fascism, and and Bolshevism to a certain extent. Um, hugely influential on both Mussolini and Lenin. And Sorrell's argument about Marx was that as a matter of sort of social science, a matter of text, it was garbage, or at least it wasn't right. Um, but as literature, as what he called an apocalyptic text, um, that could, um, uh, you know, Sorrell was the the champion of this idea of the the power of the myth, um, these motivating myths that people could rally around. The most famous being like the myth of the general strike. Um, uh, bad ideas serve this purpose all the time um, of rallying people to something that doesn't can't withstand rational scrutiny but can arouse massive passion, irrational passion nonetheless. And so you got to take bad ideas seriously. But like, I think the stuff that Vermeule is arguing is ridiculous. I think the stuff that all these nationalists are, are arguing is largely ridiculous. Um, you know, like with a lot of intellectual projects, they take perfectly valid points and, um, you know, stitch them with a lot of ridiculous points into a tapestry. So yeah, there's lots of things that, you know, Yoram Hazoni says that I agree with, but you know, his conclusions, um, and his version of history, I just think is nonsense. Like you can have the most generous interpretation of the, uh, you know, the Orban cult in, in American conservatism, um, possible, you know, you just, you can credit all the assertions of fact that, you know, Rod and all these people make. I still think it's ludicrous to think that somehow Orban and Orbanism is, uh, a useful frame for talking about American politics or where American politics is going to go or where the American right is going to go. I think it's very silly. This is, you know, uh, I, 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 I take Michael Brennan Doherty's point about how it's, perfectly fine to look at, at foreign countries and be interested in foreign politics and borrow ideas and inspiration and all that kind of stuff. Fine. It's still just plain stupid to think that this landlocked country of 10 million people is somehow going to become the role model and the inspiration and the shining city on the hill for the United States of America. Um, doesn't mean the, a lot of people who believe that stuff are stupid, but I just think it's a stupid idea. Um, I think my arguments, even if I make a lot of pull my finger jokes, are more serious than the arguments that they're making. And um, I just think it's sort of funny um, how, you know, the things people tell themselves to dismiss, you know, arguments. Lastly, um, I talked about this, I didn't talk about this at all um, before the election. I wrote a piece about how democracy is not on the ballot. And I've been thinking about it a lot. I think I was right. Democracy wasn't on the ballot. Um, I mean, it, might, it certainly was for some voters. They felt it was. And so, you know, people are allowed to vote on whatever they think is their best reason for voting. Um, you know, this is a, a point that um, a lot of people forget. Um, remember Thomas Frank, you know, wrote the book that stole the title, What's the Matter with Kansas, that everybody thinks he invented, which was, in fact, a ripoff from, God, what was his name? William Allen White. Um, a century earlier. Um, and it's not a ripoff. I mean, like Thomas Frank knew where the phrase came from, but like, it's just, it drives me crazy how many people think that like, it's sort of like the kids who think when you say now who's being naive, um, they think that's a quote from the Simpsons rather than a Simpsons quote about the Godfather. You know, Thomas's Frank, Thomas Frank's whole argument was that 
you know, the problem with American politics is that voters are getting their interests wrong. And which is a warmed over Marxist notion that somehow um, pure economic self-interest as defined by the, you know, the social justice left um, is the only proper motivation for voting and political action, um, which is I've always thought was funny for a bunch of reasons, you know, not least because um, whenever Republicans vote for, say, like tax cuts, um, the left says, oh, that's greed. And yet the whole argument from the left about why it was bad that, you know, uh, the working class was voting Republican because they were getting their economic interests wrong and they should vote for their economic interests. But when Republicans voted for their economic interest, as the left saw it, they just thought it was greed and morally illegitimate. You know, it's just, it was a very messed up argument. Um, my point is people can vote for whatever reason they think is legitimate to vote. And often people don't realize that they're voting for stuff that, um, that there are things influencing their vote that they don't consciously note. There's a reason why, you know, uh, the taller candidate in presidential elections usually wins, you know, I mean, that's, it's, no one's voting, no one's pulling a lever saying I'm going to vote for the tall guy, but it's somewhere in the overdetermined statistical soup that plays into these things. So are things like likability, you know, you know, there's a whole great debate about whether or not you should vote for the guy you'd want to have a beer with. The left thought that was crazy in 2004 because they, <laughs> they understood that nobody wanted to have a beer with John Kerry. Anyway, so uh, it's perfectly fine that some people thought that democracy is on the ballot. But my point is just simply that that my point was that that's a really dangerous and bad way to think about American politics. Um, I thought Biden's second bite at the apple with a national address talking about democracy on the ballot was bad on the substance, um, even though it now looks like maybe it worked for him. Um, but um, that kind of apocalypticism where you just think that we're one election away from doom, it was bad in 2016 with the Flight 93 stuff, and it's bad in 2020, and it's bad in 2022. Now, I do think that Donald Trump specifically poses a, a significant threat to American institutions and American constitutional order. I don't think he can defeat democracy, but he could do real damage and bad things if he were back in office um, or if even if he got the nomination. But that's a different point than saying, you know, like I saw, I saw Chuck Schumer saying that, uh, you know, we were on the precipice of authoritarianism in the 22 midterms. It's just nonsense. It's just garbage nonsense and you should just stand there in his wrongness um and uh and the reason why it's bad is that you're gonna you know the danger of a lot of bad ideas and a lot of bad arguments is that some people might believe them and if you actually you know that's one of the pernicious things about all the election denial stuff if you think you can't actually win at the polls in a fair election well, why be committed to elections anymore? Why be committed to democracy anymore? It's a really evil argument that people were making and, and, and they should be condemned. But anyway, the reason I bring this up again, I mean, it's kind of water under the bridge. I kind of came around even more to on, you know, you've all made this point, not the last time it was on here, but a couple of times ago um, 
about how he doesn't like to use the word optimistic. He prefers hopeful. And I think I even wrote about this. I didn't, I, I didn't quite get it. I mean, I didn't quite agree with it. It seems to me that optimistic and hopeful in sort of common day usage are pretty um, synonymous. Um, um, like if you just think about most sentences where you use optimistic and you changed it to hopeful, um, it really wouldn't change the meaning too much. But then when I was working on that G file a couple of weeks ago, um, I started reading up on, on Christian theology, particularly Catholic theology on, um, on, on the concept of despair and, you know, and despair is of interest to me these days because of, you know, my mom dying and all that kind of stuff. And so it's interesting, you know, it's been, it's been some people said, I think Susan Sontag wrote a, an essay or a book about this, but like that it's the unforgivable sin. And it's apparently not the only unforgivable sin, but it's one of two unforgivable sins or, or a handful of unforgivable sins. Anyway, the unforgivability of it, I am not, I know this comes as a shock to people, but I am not a Catholic theologian. But the unforgivability of it stems from the idea that when you despair, you are um, foreclosing to your own soul and to your own mind the possibility of redemption, the possibility of divine salvation. You're basically saying that there's nothing you can do and there's nothing God can do to, to fix you, to save you, to deliver you from your, your plight or from your despair. And so the reason why it's such a sin is that it's not just um, that it's, it's wallowing self-pity and bad things and all that. It's that you are basically turning your back on God and turning your back on the possibility of, 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 of mending your ways or of, of being born again or, you know, however you want to put it in either secular or, you know, specifically Christian terms. And, um, and so even if you don't think it's unforgivable, right, because, um, you know, in a, certainly in a secular sense, it shouldn't be unforgivable doesn't mean it's not bad, right? Um, because what despair means in this context, and this gets me back to the Yuval thing, what despair means in this context is the loss of hope, right? And hope isn't just about, and hope in this context isn't just optimism, right? Optimism is like, oh, things will work out, right? You know, the stock market will go back up and all that kind of stuff. But like if you're trying to talk somebody out of despair and give them some hope, what you do is you give them things that they can do that make them feel like they have some control over their lives. You know, like when my daughter would have, you know, some major crisis, you know, the, the trick was in part to come up with... Um, constructive things that she could do to fix the situation. And that's, that's the context. That's what I gather you've all means by this distinction between optimism and hope because hope being the opposite of despair, which tells you there's no reason for me to get out of bed or no reason for me to get out of the couch. There's no reason for me to go to work or any of that kind of stuff. 
um, hope tells you there are reasons to do that. Things will get better. And if you make concrete steps, if you take concrete steps, if you do specific things that will make your ho- your hopefulness about yourself in the future more likely to play out, more likely to see fruition. And, um, and I think that's, a, you know, it's a useful thing. Again, I'm, I'm not sure it works as a matter of day-to-day conversation because if you can't explain it, Sort of in those terms, people are just going to say, huh? But, uh, you know, Yuval's a deep and profound guy, and I'm sure he's capable of explaining it. Um, um, and I'm sort of more bought into it now because I've been just been thinking about it a bit. So anyway, um, last thing is, if you haven't watched The Peripheral, um, you should watch it. I think it's really good. I think it's really interesting. It's got its problems, like every sci-fi show, um, like every show, but... I'm really into it, and um, maybe we'll um, have someone on who can chew the fat with me about it down the road. Um, And so with that, uh, thank you for listening. Please, if you haven't become a subscriber to The Dispatch yet, or a member, or whatever, um, please consider it. Um, Please consider giving a gift gift subscription to somebody. Um, You know, if you think Alapundit is worth 10 bucks a month, or if you think Kevin Williamson's worth 10 bucks a month or Scott Lincecum or Chris Steyerwald or David French or me, um, well, you know, you get all of us for just 10 bucks a month or a hundred bucks a year. And, um, you know, it's like a bunch of the best sub stacks. Oh, and Klon Kitchen too, right? Um, I always feel bad. I always forget, you know, the, include everybody, you know, there's Sarah Isger with the, with the sweep and there's, um, Haley bird wilt with uphill. I mean, we're putting out, and of course there's the morning dispatch, we're putting out a lot of great stuff that I think if they were one, uh, one person operations as standalone Substack newsletters, they'd be worth the price, um, of a subscription to the dispatch, but you get them all under the same one price. And, um, you know, we want, we really want to keep growing. Lots of places are stagnating. We are not. And we want to press the advantage um, because there's so much other cool stuff that we really want to do. And we want to bring everybody along for the ride. So with that, uh, thank you for listening. And I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>